Chapter Three of Henry Ford's Own Story. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leanne Howlett. Henry Ford's Own Story by Rose Wilder Lane. Chapter Three: The First Job. When Mary Ford died, the heart of the home went with her. The house was like a watch without a mainspring. Her son says. William Ford did his best, but it must have been a pathetic attempt, that effort of the big, hard-working farmer to take a mother's place to the four children. For a time a married aunt came in and managed the household, but she was needed in her own home and soon went back to it. Then Margaret, Henry's youngest sister, took charge, and tried to keep the house in order and superintend the work of hired girls older than herself. She was capable— that good New England word so much more expressive than efficient, but no one could take Mary Ford's place in that home. There was now nothing to hold Henry on the farm. He had learned how to do the farm work, and the little attraction it had had for him was gone. Thereafter every task was merely a repetition. His father did not need his help. There were always the hired men. I suppose any need William Ford may have felt for the companionship of his second son was unexpressed. In matters of emotion, the family is not demonstrative. The boy had exhausted the possibilities of the farm shop. His last work in it was the building of a small steam engine. For this, helped partly by pictures, partly by his boyish ingenuity, he made his own patterns, his own castings, did his own machine work. His material was bits of old iron, pieces of wagon tires, stray teeth from harrows, anything and everything from the scrap pile in the shop, which he could utilize in any imaginable way. When the engine was finished, Henry mounted it on an improvised chassis which he had cut down from an old farm wagon, attached it by a direct drive to a wheel on one side, something like a locomotive connecting rod, and capped the hole with a whistle which could be heard for miles. When he had completed the job, he looked at the result with some natural pride. Sitting at the throttle, tooting the ear-splitting whistle, he charged up and down the meadow lot at nearly ten miles an hour, frightening every cow on the place. But after all his work, for some reason the engine did not please him long. Possibly the lack of enthusiasm with which it was received disappointed him. In the technical journals, which he read eagerly during his sixteenth winter, he learned about the big ironworks of Detroit, saw pictures of machines he longed to handle. Early the next spring, when the snow had melted and every breeze that blew across the fields was an invitation to begin something new, Henry started to school as usual one morning and did not return. Detroit is only a few miles from Greenfield. Henry made the journey on the train that morning, and while his family supposed him at school, and the teacher was marking a matter-of-fact absent after his name, he had already set about his independent career. He had made several trips to Detroit in the past, but this time the city looked very different to him. It had worn a holiday appearance before, but now it seemed stern and busy, a little too busy, perhaps, to waste much attention on a country boy of sixteen looking for a job. Nevertheless, he whistled cheerfully enough to himself, and started briskly through the crowds. He knew what he wanted, and he was going straight for it. "'I always knew I would get what I went after,' he says. 
I don't recall having any very great doubts or fears. At that time, the shop of James Flower and Company, manufacturers of steam engines and steam engine appliances, was one of Detroit's largest factories. Over 100 men were employed there, and their output was one to be pointed to with pride by boastful citizens. Henry Ford's nerves, healthy and steady as they were, tingled with excitement when he entered the place. He had read of it, and had even seen a picture of it, but now he beheld for himself its size and the great number of machines and men. This was something big, he said to himself. After a moment he asked a man working near where he could find the foreman. Over there, the big fellow in the red shirt, the man replied. Henry hurried over and asked for a job. The foreman looked at him and saw a slight, wiry country boy who wanted work. There was nothing remarkable about him, one supposes. The foreman did not perceive immediately, after one look into his steady eye, that this was no ordinary lad, as foremen so frequently do in fiction. Instead, he looked Henry over, asked him a question or two, remembered that a big order had just come in and he was short of hands. "'Well, come to work tomorrow. I'll see what you can do,' he said. "'Pay you two and a half a week.' "'All right, sir.' Henry responded promptly, but the foreman had already turned his back and forgotten him. Henry, almost doubtful of his good fortune, hurried away before the foreman should change his mind. Outside in the sunshine he pushed his cap on the back of his head, thrust his hands deep into his pockets, jingling the silver in one of them, and walked down the street whistling. The world looked like a good place to him. No more farming for Henry Ford. He was a machinist now with a job in the James Flower Shops. Before him there unrolled a bright future. He was ambitious. He did not intend always to remain a mechanic. One day, when he had learned all there was to know about the making of steam engines, he intended to drive one himself. He would be a locomotive engineer, nothing less. Meantime, there were practical questions of food and shelter to consider immediately, and he was not the boy to waste time in speculations for the future, when there was anything to be done. He counted his money, almost four dollars, and a prospect of two and a half every week. Then he set out to find a boarding house. Two dollars and a half a week, not a large living income, even in 1878. Henry walked a long time looking for a landlady who would consent to board a healthy sixteen-year-old mechanic for that sum. It was late that afternoon before he found one who, after some hesitation, agreed to do it. Then he looked at the small, dirty room she showed him, at her untidy, slatternly person, and decided that he would not live there. He came out into the street again. Henry was facing the big problem. How was he to live on an income too small? Apparently his mind went, with the precision of a machine, directly to the answer. When your reasonable expenses exceed your income, increase your income. Simple. He knew that after he had finished his day's work at the shops, there would be a margin of several hours a day left to him. He would have to turn them into money. That was all. He returned to a clean boarding house he had visited earlier in the day, paid three dollars and a half in advance for one week's board, and ate a hearty supper. Then he went to bed. End of chapter 3